0: Well, amen, it is great to have you with us in 2024, so welcome back. For those of you here last week, sorry we weren't here, Um, but it's great to have you with us today as we celebrate and begin a brand new book of the Bible. We're going to be looking at the book of Matthew, and today I'm going to summarize the entire book. So we're going to look at a lot of scripture today. And so my goal here is not to get stuck on on the individual trees, but to really focus on the forest. What is Matthew trying to say? And we're using, as you can see, a huge golf metaphor because Matthew is laying out the course for who Jesus is, what the New Testament's gonna be about, and what God is planning. And in doing so, let me tell you, of the many reasons you can trust the Bible, Matthew is a class example. If you were gonna make up a story, you would never make up a story like this. And if you're gonna make up a story about how, how your, uh, y- your master is Messiah, you would not have his biography be written by a Jewish tax collector hated by the Jews. This would be like the worst possible author to make up a story. Two, you wouldn't mention real places, real famous people, powerful people. Details about them, Caesar Augustus, Pilate, um, Joseph Arimathea. These are real well-known people that he gives details about in the story. And third, you wouldn't present Jesus as a suffering servant. You would present him as like a political leader if you're making it up. Matthew doesn't do any of that. In fact, he's going to try and convince us that Jesus is the new and far better Moses. He is everything Moses was and so much more. That's the idea. He wants us to know that Jesus is the king, the Messiah, but he is a new and better Moses in the way he lays it out. The book's going to start by saying the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That word genealogy is literally in Greek the word Genesis. So just like the Old Testament starts with the Genesis of the heavens and earth, we're starting with the Genesis of the origin of Jesus himself. And we're going to find from the very beginning, his family of origin is filled with all kinds of tyrants and selfish and, and angry and broken people. And he came to rescue them all. The Bible's not good people can come into the fold. It's for bad people who want to find a way to be forgiven and led together. It reminds me of a buddy of mine. His name was Derek when I was in high school. And he came to the school one day and he's got a cast on his arm. I said, Derek, what happened? What happened? He said, oh, it's a sporting accident. Sporting accident? What sport do you play? I was on the track team and soccer team and went to some football games and basketball teams. I'd never seen Derek. So what, what sport do you play? I'm on the golf team. Must have been quite a brawl out there in the golf course this week. He's like, I don't want to talk about it. When you tell a guy you're not supposed to talk about it, you, of course, say you got to talk about it. He says, well, I was up to win the whole championship last weekend. Final putt, it was a gimme, went down there, went to hit it, and sure enough, it rolled around the hole and didn't go in. I got so angry. I grabbed my putter, I slammed it on the ground, it bounced off the ground, bounced back up and broke my arm. And now i got to tell the stupid story and wear the stupid cast. And what's interesting is Matthew begins by saying, we are filled with broken people, angry people who get mad at the wrong things, but God came to rescue all of us. And Matthew's going to show us how Jesus fulfills the fairway and he also hits the scorecard that the Old Testament laid out. So I'll start with the fairway. And my hope is today as we study this that you can kind of see what God's been doing in my life is that you're going to find that Jesus is not only the king, like and there's evidence to support that, but he also going to be your king and rule and lead your life in a really powerful way. So let's start with the fairway. So here in the fairway, we're going to find that God's back nine, the New Testament, fulfills his front nine, the Old Testament. Everything about what Matthew lays out is connected to the Old Testament. So here's kind of an outline I put together for the book of Matthew. Set up as a nine-hole golf course. We're going to see in this book how he's trying to connect Jesus to Abraham, then to David. Then he's got a whole section we're going to spend some time on today, connecting Jesus to Moses Then he's going to lay out Jesus' teaching in one, two, three, four, five sections. Then come back at the end and tell us how Jesus is the Passover lamb who was crucified and rose from the dead. So that's where we're headed today. He begins on hole one and two by tracing Jesus to show specifically he's connected to Abraham and to David in the family tree. He says this clearly the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, he is the son of David and he is the son of Abraham. And this theme's going to come up over and over and over again in the book. He's going to move from there to this long hole here that I've laid out, which is a series of stories that is going to connect Jesus to Moses. So as you can see on this hole, we got some alligators up front. He's going to be saved at birth. He's going to get past the pyramid. He's going to get called out of Egypt. They're going to have a water feature. They're going to have the Red Sea crossing and his baptism. They're both going to encounter a wilderness, and they're both going to end up on top of a mountaintop. So let me compare and contrast the two. So story in Exodus. Pharaoh says, when when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, if it's a son, you're going to kill him. Those Hebrew kids, kill him. But a woman conceived and bore a son, and she saw he was a beautiful child. His name was Moses. And she hid him for three months. And God rescues supernaturally this child, because he gets put in a little ark and pushed in the Nile, and God delivers Moses, and he's risen, and he's, he's raised in the, in the Egyptian household and prepared for God's plan for him. Now, in the same way, Matthew begins his story in this section of the book by telling us the same thing. Jesus was saved at birth. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, he was exceedingly angry. He sent forth to put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its districts from the two years old and under. Of all the stories he picks out, Matthew tells us this one. The next thing we find out about Moses, of course, is that he was called by God to call people out of Egypt. God appears to him in a burning bush, and the Lord says in Exodus, I have seen the oppression of my people, they've been in bondage for 400 years. So I have come down, I personally have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. God says, what's your name? He says, I am who I am. That's the name Yahweh. Sometimes it was so sacred they called him Jehovah just because they didn't want to say his sacred name. But both really point to Yahweh, his name. Another interesting thing is when Moses is going into the promised land, he sends in two spies. One spy's name is Hashua, which means salvation. But right before Joshua goes into the land, Moses renames Hashua, salvation, to Joshua, Yahweh, or Jehovah is my salvation. So the name Joshua given by Moses means Yahweh is my salvation. Keep that in mind. The next story Matthew tells about Jesus, and sure enough, she will bring forth a son, right? And his name will be Jesus which we'll talk about in a few weeks, but that's an English transliteration of the word Joshua. Jesus, or Joshua, his name literally means Yahweh saves. Moses was going to save you from political bondage by getting you out of Egypt. Jesus is going to save you out of spiritual bondage that you couldn't get yourself out of. Only Yahweh can save. He will save the people from their sins. And then, as he lays out his story, He will call Jesus and his family to leave to hide from Herod in Egypt. Then when Herod is dead, he will call them out of Egypt. Joseph departed for Egypt, and there he was there until the death of Egypt. That it might be fulfilled, out of Egypt I called my son. Jesus was called out of Egypt. Moses and his people were called out of Egypt. The next thing that Moses encounters is that Red Sea crossing. Sure enough, Paul tells us, it's really interesting what Paul tells us in Corinthians. He says, all our fathers are under the cloud. They were all baptized into the sea when they crossed over the Red Sea. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And then God provided water from a rock, and they were drinking, not just water, but they were drinking from a spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Paul's telling us everything in the Old Testament was designed to point you to Jesus. Jesus. Well, in the same way that Moses encounters this water feature called the Red Sea, the next story Matthew tells us is Jesus encountering a baptism water feature. But when he was baptized, Jesus came up immediately up out of the water. And behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove alighting around him. And a voice from heaven came and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Well, Moses never got that. Well, he was a humble man God spoke to. But now God himself is saying this is far better than Moses. And the reason the book of Matthew is going to end with a great commission where you baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is because he wants you and I to know that the same thing he says to his son Jesus, I am well pleased with my son. When you ask Jesus into your life and you recognize that you need your sins covered to be saved from your own wrongdoing, God not only saves you, but God then looks at you and says, in you I am well pleased because you are fully forgiven. This last year in 2024, we got to see lots of stories of people being baptized out at our baptism services. And you over and over, you hear them go in public with what God's done in their life. They have found that Jesus gives them what God gave him, an understanding of being pleasing to God. Let me let you hear a couple of their stories from last year. It's kind of cool. Well, I'd just like to thank my family for being here and uh, joining me on this milestone of, of the journey. And thank you as well for your decade of uh, subtle suggestion. But more important, I think, over that decade, because we were talking about time earlier, I think my comfort level being here, again, I think like most of us, we've already you know, recognized Christ as our Savior. We've always recognized Kind of where we should be spiritually uh, and are always trying to improve it uh, as we're all so perfect me maybe more obviously than most if you ask my family uh, but i think also just being here in horizon with some of the messages from chad and the other pastors i think has really helped us myself personally be comfortable with a public declaration uh, of, of following christ i baptize you in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit Really, I've been a Christian a long time, but I really felt led to be baptized, and that's why I'm here today. So, Awesome. Well, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I baptize you. I'm really grateful that God came in my life, and I used to like look at God as some big guy in the clouds, but now I like look at him as somebody who saved me, so I'm ready to get baptized. Baptizing in God's name. I love that because it's people with small group leaders being baptized. It was a brother and sister, that second one. Uh, that was a family. It's people finding Jesus king based on the evidence and finding it changes your life when he becomes your king. Baptism. The next thing that Matthew lays out is this sand feature, the sand trap both Moses and Jesus go into the wilderness. The children of Israel ate manna for 40 years in this uninhabited place called the wilderness. The next thing we learn about Jesus is Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness and tempted by the devil. He's faithful where his people were not faithful. And they were there for 40 years. He was there for 40 days. And then... Just like Moses climbed a mountain to deliver the law, Jesus climbs a mountain to deliver the law. So here we climb up the mountain. For Moses, the Lord came down from Mount Sinai at the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. He goes up, he comes down, and he spoke to the people. Here's the laws, here's the Ten Commandments. Jesus, now we're in chapter 4 or 5, seeing the multitudes around him, Jesus, what did he do? He went up on a mountain, And when he's there, he seated his disciples around and he opened his mouth and he taught them the law of the kingdom. What he's been trying to show us is that Jesus is far better than Moses in so many different ways. He's got a better deliverance than Moses had. He's got a better covenant. We just celebrated communion today, the new covenant of my blood. He's got a better divine teaching of the law, as you're going to see in a moment. And he's got a better solution to sin than just going to temple and having animal sacrifices. That's what he's been building on. And that's why when you look at the fairway as a whole, there's something pretty amazing going on. Look at these five different teachings here. Because he's now going to outline chapters 4 through 25 in five giant sections. Each section ends with a big chunk of teaching. Then story, 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 chunk of teaching. Story, story, story. Why does he choose five and why does he organize it this way? Well, chapters 4 to 7, he announces the kingdom has come. And then we have the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. Then in chapter 8, there's all these different transformed lives that impact with Jesus. It's powerful. Then he calls his disciples together and he sends them out. And right before he sends them out, a big chunk of teaching. What you need to expect, what God's going to do, what you need to know, second teaching. Then we get to chapter 11 to 13, we see different people responding to the kingdom, some positive. Some negative, some neutral. After those responses, another big chunk of teaching about the kingdom. It's like a pearl. It's like yeast that rises. All of this teaching on the kingdom in a third section of teaching. Then we get to expectations about the kingdom. I thought you were going to be a political leader. Jesus says, no, I'm going to come to die. All these different expectations. What to expect, what he's saying versus what he's doing. And then... Another fourth giant chunk of teaching about the upside-down kingdom of God. Serve, you didn't come to be served, but to serve. You don't exalt yourself, you're humbled. Fourth giant chunk of teaching. Then he moves into the last clash of the kingdoms. Uh, People don't like what he's doing. People are trying to kill him off for what he's doing. And in chapter 23, 24, and 25, he clashes with the Pharisees. Woe unto you, you blind guides! You go all the way across the world and make them twice the son of hell as you are! You're like a whitewashed tomb full of dead men's bones, Jesus says. Then, chapter 24, he talks about the rapture when we're called up to the sky, when he will return from the air. Why does Matthew organize the teachings of Jesus in these five chunks? Let's go back to Moses. What kind of teaching do we have from Moses? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Five chunks of teaching. What do we get from Matthew? Five chunks of teaching. And did you know even Moses shows up in the book of Matthew? In chapter 17, Moses himself and Elijah show up at the transfiguration to talk to him and to validate what he's doing, that he's fulfilling everything that the Old Testament spoke of. Peter sees Elijah and Moses representing the law of God and the prophets of God. And Peter says, Lord, man, it's good to be here. This is good to be here. Thanks for inviting us. Let's set up three tabernacles to celebrate what God's doing. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Here's my point. What we do as a church is we're trying to give evidence so that you can know Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is who he says he is. You can share that with friends. Just this year I've got to see that in so many different ways. I was talking to somebody just this weekend and they talked about how over the last couple of years they started coming to Horizon 13 years ago. It was along that process. They came to our exploring service. Loved our exploring service. He said, you know what, I'm now coming to the equipping Because I've now got the evidence that Jesus is who he says he is, and I want to start growing in that. I'm seeing my marriage changed, I'm seeing my family changed. I had another couple at our church talked about this last year. One of the things that struck them was a series we did last year called Seven Wonders, where I kind of gave the evidence, the difference between what the Bible says about Jesus and what the Quran says about Jesus. And they showed up to our exploring service and they said, Man, I gotta send it to friends. And they sent that message about the Taj Mahal to friends. And they start attending our church. Many of you said as we studied Isaiah, that Isaiah 53 message we gave about the suffering servant impacted you. Wow, this was predicted hundreds of years in advance, exactly how Jesus would die. And you've come to find out that Jesus is not just something you believe in. There's so much evidence, claim support for what you believe in. It's why we do what we do. It's because we want you to know this is true. And that's what Matthew's trying to say he fulfills the fairway of the Old Testament. But more than that, he hits the scorecard of Moses the law and Elijah the prophets. Scorecard. What does it mean that he fulfills those things? What he's going to show us all through the book is that the different prophets laid out certain expectations. Isaiah, as we studied last year, has lots of expectations. Here's exactly what Messiah needs to do. Here's how he's going to die, here's how he's going to be born, here's how he's going to live. Micah's going to show up, and Micah's going to say, well, yeah, and he's got to live in a particular town, he's got to come from a particular place, You going to have to fulfill those things as well. Hosea comes along, not a huge prophetic book, but there's several prophecies in there about Messiah. And then there's a handful of others. There's Zechariah's in there, some other prophets in there, uh, there's Jeremiah in there, they're all laid out. So what Matthew is going to do is, as he's telling the story, he's going to show how Jesus just keeps picking up those prophecies. That's what he's going to do. So let me show you just from the very beginning. We're just going to walk through the book. Don't take any notes because I want you to get to the big picture of this, not the individual verses. Here's how he starts. He goes, first thing you need to know is that there's kind of like a a par three you need to hit. Jesus is going to hit hole in one after hole in one after hole in one after hole in one on this thing. First thing, Isaiah. We're told, virgin will be with child. Ding, we got one. Next thing, wise men show up. Where's Messiah supposed to be uh, born anyway? They tell Herod, oh, what did Micah say? Supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And from the very beginning, we see he fulfills these prophecies. Then we move a little bit further. We get to the book of Hosea. He's in Egypt. He's not just in Egypt as a metaphor. It's to predict exactly what Hosea said. Out of Egypt, I will call my son. Fulfills another one. Then he's going to end up back in Nazareth, fulfilling what the scripture says is what the prophets say. Look at what it says in the next verse. It's fulfilled. And this is Matthew's favorite word. Fulfilled, 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 fulfilled. It was fulfilled what Jeremiah said. Now remember when Jeremiah spoke, Jeremiah said, where's Jeremiah? He's over here. He said that when he's born, he'll be born into a time of devastation. Remember all those children that are dying? Sadly, that was also a fulfillment of what would be happening in the environment when Jesus died. Jeremiah. Then he heads back into Nazareth. And here it says, that is fulfilled what the, notice the word prophet. Spoken by the prophets, he will be called the Nazarene or the branch. That comes from three prophets. It comes from uh, Isaiah and it comes from Zechariah and it comes from Jeremiah. That he would be a branch. And the town Nazareth literally means branchville because they were expecting him. So then there's another Isaiah. Zechariah, it's another one over here, and Jeremiah. So again, he just keeps laying out all the ways he's fulfilling that. Now, notice how many ways he uses the word fulfilled as you go through the rest of the book. It's through the entire book. Here's the next one Permit it be so now. Let me be baptized, John, because I'm trying to fulfill all righteousness. I'm showing an example. Just like my people pass through the water, I'm passing through the water. Next one. We go from chapter 3 to chapter 14. He's speaking, he says, another one of Isaiah's prophecies get fulfilled. Jesus says, don't think I came to abolish the prophets. No, 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 no. I came to not destroy them, but to what? Fulfill them. Everything I'm doing is to fulfill them. Now we're in chapter 5. Let's jump forward. We're in chapter uh, 5 and 8. Till all the law is fulfilled. Another one. I'm here to fulfill the law pops it in. Then he begins to heal people. As he's healing people, what happens? Matthew 8. He says, that it might be fulfilled, which was pro- spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, that it's through his infirmities he bore our sickness. Oh, now they're not catching it all, but Matthew's like, it was all over the place. Let's move from chapter 8. What's next? He gets to chapter 12. He starts speaking in, in different ways, and he says, That's another one Isaiah mentioned. You may not have mentioned that. Go look that up. Another Isaiah passage. Then the prophecy Isaiah was spoken Hearing you will hear, that you will not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. Like, what is that all about? Well, Isaiah had said that when Messiah comes, he will speak to the people in parables. They will see him speaking, but they will not understand because he speaks in parables. That's another fulfillment. He'll actually say this two times. Once he says it to the people, once he says it to the leaders. Here's what it says in chapter 13. That it might be fulfilled what was spoken of by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. This time he's speaking parables to the leaders. Just like Isaiah said he would. Another one. Do you get the idea? (laughs) He is fulfilling all of these prophecies. Now, we're almost done. We go from chapter 13 now and we jump into the 20s all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of by yet another prophet he picks up another one in chapter 21. he then says how then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus he keeps telling you isn't this exactly what the prophets said would happen he's kind of keeping this idea in your mind but one of the most powerful ones is still yet to come as we end up in the 20s here But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. He's saying, here's what I've been trying to tell you in this whole book. Jesus has been fulfilling all the things laid out in the Old Testament. That's what the main idea has been. But look at this last one. Then it was fulfilled what was spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah. This has to do with his betrayal by Judas. And they took the 30 pieces of silver... Now Imagine predicting Messiah would be betrayed hundreds of years in advance. He betrayed for 30, not 20, not 25, not 32, for 30. Not gold, not copper, silver. Imagine calculating inflation hundreds of years in advance. That was the value of him he priced, whom they of the children of Israel pierced. He even fulfilled that one. And the book ends... And they crucified him and divide his garments, casting lots. And even when they divide up his garments, it fulfilled what was spoken of by one of the prophets of the Old Testament. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Isaiah wants you to know that there's evidence that Jesus is who he says he is, it's on every page. So, what's the probability of that happening? If I told you, for example, that Jesus had a 1 out of 10 chance of fulfilling prophecy, that would be like me saying, 1 chance out of 10. I grab about 10 balls. I say your chance of blindfolded picking this one out of this group. That's 1 out of 10. 10 to the 1st. If I put 1 yellow ball in all this, that's about 100 balls. This is 1 to 10 to the 2nd power. 1 out of 100. See how much bigger the ball is in my hands? The power of 10 is pretty powerful. Mathematicians have said that the chance of one person fulfilling 19 specific prophecies, now Jesus filled 300 to 500 of them, but just 19, is 1 in 10 to the 45th power. Ask your Amazon to say the word. It'll literally say, What is 10 to the 45th? It'll say, that's 10000000000000, and it will say zeros for 45 times. Now, how big is that? How probable is that? If we made a golf ball that had the width from the sun to Pluto, that would be five billion kilometers. But one to ten to the forty-fifth is five hundred and forty billion kilometers wide. Which means if we had a golf ball the size of the sun to Pluto filled with golf balls and one in all of that sun to Pluto sized golf ball, you would still have to multiply it times 90 to get to the size of 10 to the 45th power. And the chances of one person fulfilling all of these 19, not the whole 300 prophecies, is 1 to 10 to the 45th power. This is miraculous. This is proof that Jesus is the new and better Moses, the Messiah, the Son of God, that only God Himself could fulfill. See, you can know Jesus is not just a way to God. He is the way to God. He is the King, and He wants to be your King. And the book ends by emphasizing his kingship. He wants you to believe in the God who fulfilled the Pharaoh. Even when he's crucified, there's a big sign over his head, the king of the Jews. But look what the people say to him. If he's the king of the Israel, let him come down now from the cross. Then we'll believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him. Now if you'll have him, for he said, I am the son of God. See, they still want a political leader. And they say, you prove you're God by coming down off the cross. But Jesus was proving he was God by staying on the cross. Exactly what Isaiah had told us he would do. He'd be pierced for our transgressions, prophesying crucifixion hundreds of years before the Romans even invented it, let alone implemented. See, he's not the king the people expected. But he is the king God predicted. He's not what they wanted, but he is what we all needed. I want this new season for you as you study the book of Matthew with us to see it's going to so reinforce your faith. It's going to give you so much evidence to know who Jesus is and to trust. When he says his way, his upside down kingdom's the way to live, trust him. He's got the, the receipts to back it up. Reminds me of Blaise Pascal. He was a mathematician and a a philosopher and a Christian. In fact, we've all been influenced by by Pascal in many ways. If you've ever used a calculator, guess who invented that? Pascal. I mean, mathematics goes back to the Egyptians in different ways, but the actual modern calculator, Pascal invented that. If you ever used a syringe when you go to the doctor, Pascal invented that. And he was intrigued as he became a Christian because, as a man of science, a man of mathematics, a man math of probability, he saw all the evidence pointing to Jesus fulfilling the prophecies. And he couldn't get his colleagues at the college he taught at to even consider the evidence for Jesus. So he engaged in what's known as Pascal's wager. He just simply said this Guys, it's real simple. If you believe in God, and it turns out there is a God, you get eternal joy. What a deal! If you believe in God and there is no God, nothing really happens. You didn't lose anything. But if you don't believe in God and there is a God, that's eternal suffering. That's, that's, that's a bad bet. And if you don't believe in God and there is a God, it doesn't really matter. He says, so bet on God. At least investigate the evidence. It's worth the risk. It's worth the bet. It's worth considering what might be true. In fact, King Louis called Pascal into his office one day, or his you know his castle, his throne room, and he said, Can you give me one proof that even God exists? And Pascal thought for a moment of all the different evidences and philosophy and things he could say. And Pascal turned to King Louis and said, Yeah, I'll give you a proof for God, the Jews. God said he would be faithful to a group of people. And this group of people who has been pounded out by Philistines and Ammonites and Canaanites all through history, World War II. Actually, World War II would have validated what Pascal said. Pascal was before that. Just show that somehow this group of people has something working in the midst that no one else has. There's proof that God exists, his faithfulness to the Jewish people. It's very similar to something Mark Twain wrote in Harper's Magazine in 1899. He said, the Egyptian, the Babylonian, and the Persian rose, filled the planet with sound and splendor, then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Roman followed. They made a vast noise, and they were gone. Other people have sprung up, held their torch high for a time, but it burned out, and they sat in twilight now or have vanished. The Jew saw them all beat them all, and is now what he always was, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening of parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert and aggressive mind. All things are mortal except the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? Mark Twain. There must be someone keeping a promise to that people that the other people didn't have. As you look in this coming year, I hope you find incredible intellectual stimulus as we study Jesus. I hope your heart gets filled up as you recognize his kingship, kingship can reign in your life and what it's going to do in your marriage, what it's going to do in your life, what's going to help you do in, in prioritizing exactly what matters and what subordinates to what mostly I want you to see that Jesus, he wants to be your king. He wants to be my king. He wants to teach us how to live the life, the kingdom life that he's called us to. So let's begin this year in prayer. Can we? Father, thank you for Matthew. Thank you for his incredible biography, laying out who you are and what you've done. And show us, Father, how we can Join you in the incredible work you're doing here on earth. In Jesus' name, amen.